everyone else, we'll be in Psalm 73 today. If you want to begin turning there, that would be great. There's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one of your own, stick your hand in the middle. You'll probably be close to Psalm 73. We've been in a, a series this summer called Songs for Summer. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the reason we call it this is the middle book in your Bible is uh, called Psalms. Psalms is actually a collection of 150 different songs. These are the prayers and ancient songs of the people of God. So we'll look this morning together at uh, one of the 150 that have literally been read, prayed, and sung by God's people for thousands of years. Kind of amazing to uh, think about. Thanks again to those of you who preached while I was gone. Um, we, uh, at When we hit the five-year mark of serving here at Church on Mill, the church graciously began giving me uh, four weeks of sabbatical a year to interrupt the normal rhythm of work and get out of town and work on longer-range uh, projects and rest. So in the coming weeks, I'll be able to share with you some of the things we did, but thank you for the time uh, away. Today... Uh, I hope you'll be encouraged by this psalm as I have been. It was written by a guy named Asaph. Now, I've yet to, uh, several babies were born while I was gone. None of them are named Asaph, and nor have I ever met an Asaph. So, unusual name, but let me tell you just briefly who he is. Uh, Asaph was one of the Levites who King David, the second king of Israel, put in charge of the song writing and song leading in the tabernacle. And so the way we might put that today is the, the person in charge of writing the music and standing in front leading the band is Asaph. And slowly over time, Asaph rose above his peers and became the chief song leader for the people of God. Today we're going to hear as he recounts his own a journey with the Lord. Abby's going to come read for us from Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out of fatness. Their arts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. 
Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I may tell all of your works. Thank you, Abby. Uh, our habit here as a church family is to simply open the Bible to a passage, read uh, that passage, and try to uh, then explain it and work it out in our experience. We uh, believe as a church that God spoke through people as they recorded what he wanted them to say in the scriptures. So we trust and have been praying that uh, you would be encouraged today by God's word. Asaph here describes uh, his own experience. This is what we might call an autobiographical psalm. He's not dealing with abstract ideas quite apart from himself. Rather, he's recounting something that happened to him and through him and in him. And it's something that likely will occur in most, if not all, of our own experiences. We're going to consider his story today through three words. First, orientation. We'll start by looking at Asaph's initial introductory way of looking at life. That's verse 1. And then we'll consider the largest stretch of the psalm is what we might call disorientation, a period of time in which Asaph went through deep discouragement. And finally, we'll consider the way in which God reoriented him. If uh, you were to leave right now and read that psalm later, I think you could find very easily those three different sections in this song. Well, let's first consider orientation. The psalm begins by declaring a most precious truth. Yes, it may seem basic to many of us, but it is most precious. God is good. God is good. God is good. Verse 1 says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Brothers and sisters, God is good to his people. And not only does God do good, God is good. He is perfect in his goodness. Imagine with me just briefly this morning a quote-unquote God who has total power, total knowledge, the ability to do anything and everything he would ever want to do. A God complete in holiness and ultimately devoted to his own glory. Imagine that God being un or not good. It's a terrifying thought. Because as Randy prayed so well for us this morning, we all are people acquainted with difficulty in obeying God. We are sinful 
people who are not good. If God were not good, then his other attributes would, in fact, crush us. But friends, the kind-heartedness of God towards his own, his wholesomeness, his undeserved benevolence toward us, these are all the fruit. His goodness is the root. In the 1850s, a man named Stephen Charnock wrote what is still the classic work on the character traits of God. It's called The Existence and Attributes of God. If you're interested in an excellent read, you could search for that on your phone and find it as a free PDF. Uh, Last hour, someone told me uh, during the break, I didn't hear the rest of your sermon because I looked the book up and started reading it. It's not exactly what my intent is, but to each their own. Uh, Stephen Charnock gives in his book 145 pages simply to the topic of the goodness of God. 145 pages. That's longer than most of us will read this year. It's amazing. You've missed my mocking, haven't you? Stephen says this about the goodness of God. God only is infinitely good. A boundless goodness that knows no limits. A goodness as infinite as his essence. Not only good, but best. Not only good, but goodness itself. The supreme inconceivable goodness. Nothing that is good by his influence can equal him who is good by himself. That's good. Brothers and sisters, how would your life and how would our church change if our fundamental orientation each morning to our day were that God is good? It would be radically different. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, God, you are good and you do good. Christian, that is to be the way that we look at life. And Asaph, as he starts his autobiographical psalm, as he writes this song about his experience, that's where he starts. God is good. God's good to Israel. He's good to those who are pure in heart. But you'll notice in verse 2 that there's a problem. It didn't take long for Asaph's orientation to be lost. Asaph shifted from his basic assumption of life to something far different. And he does so with four little words. But as for me. I wonder today who, sitting here this morning, feels like the odd person out. Maybe you stood and sung just like everybody else. You looked happy just like they did. But really inside, you're sad, you're jealous, you're confused. Perhaps what you actually feel is God is good to everybody else but me. God's good to all of these people, 
But as I look at my life, I do not see that God is good. If that's you today, understand you're not alone. There are others, of course, in the room who are questioning the goodness of God. But more important than that is the fact that here, this great song leader of the Old Testament found himself doubting, questioning, struggling, disoriented with a lack of belief in the goodness of God. I find the Bible to be amazing because it is so unlike the way we talk. The Bible speaks truth, unhypocritical, fact, reality. And Asaph says, God, you might be good. You might be good to everybody except me. Now, we don't know the circumstances in his life, but he recounts the depth of this disorientation from verse 2 all the way through verse 15. We might say that his spiritual equilibrium is shot entirely. Again, I wonder how many of us in the room this morning would say the same thing. Did you know that your uh, balance is in part set by and held by tiny little crystals inside your ears? Now, no, they're not that nasty stuff you pull out of there sometimes. They're, they're further in there, and if you get hit hard enough in the head or turn suddenly or catch a virus, then those crystals can actually turn. And there's a few doctors in the room. I'm sure I'm not explaining this medically precisely, but my uh, own experience with the doctors trying to fix this is that if those crystals get turned wrong, then everything else can be right and you can feel like a wobbly, bobbly gobble of goo, completely disoriented, dizzy all the time. It seems that Asaph's spiritual senses inside have gotten twisted in such a way that he's no longer able to accurately assess reality. He couldn't walk in a straight line spiritually, as it were, because he was so confused. Now, as Asaph struggled, he found himself looking around in comparison. He took his eyes off God, as it were, and found himself instead looking around at everybody else. And as he did that, he paints an incredibly vivid picture of what the people around him were like. We won't read it again, but 2 through 12 recounts this. He says, there's, there's no pain until death. Everybody else I see has got it easy. No pain at all. My favorite is the second thing he says. He says, their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, for the Americans in the room, the image is completely lost to you. Let me see if I can briefly explain. Some of us struggle with weight because of medical issues. Others of us struggle with weight simply because of gluttony, because there's an abundance of food. And the way we deal with life and its hardships is to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And that food serves as a quasi-comforter, if you will. 
Now, the catch here is you can't tell which is which just by looking at somebody. So be careful in passing judgment on someone's appearance. But that's not the image that Asaph was thinking about. You see, in the Old Testament, at this time period, no one had a refrigerator. There was no a fries down the street. You often didn't know where tomorrow's food would come from. And so if you were fat, then what did that mean? Friend, far from being a sign of a lack of control, it was a sign of prosperity. Years ago, I was on a a mission trip in Rwanda, and uh, I got to know a guy pretty well, and he was introducing himself to another person. And I watched as the additional person looked at the other guy and said, hey, are you married? He said, yeah, I'd love to see a picture. So he took out a folded, wadded-up picture from his pocket, held it up, and there was a picture of his very large wife. And the other guy says, whoa! Now, I know enough to know that's probably not the right response. But he didn't seem offended. And so, privately, I asked the guy later, and there must be something cultural here in the way he reacted to the picture of your wife. Can you explain that to me? And he said, well, I was given a plot of land. Most of my countrymen don't have land. We've used that land to grow crops, and my wife has plenty of food. Have you noticed how essentially every other woman you see is rail thin? It's because they're poor and near starvation. That's what Asaph is saying. He's saying, as I look around, I see people who have an overabundance They are so wealthy, they are quite literally eating themselves to death. And then he said, sleek. Does that mean like, ugh, they don't wash their hair enough? What is that? Friends, if you raise cattle, what do you want your cattle to be? Fat and sleek. You want their coat? To be healthy, abundant, full. Because the bigger the cow, the bigger the paycheck. Asaph is saying, as I look out and I see people who are not following God, and I compare them to myself, I am skinny, starving, and nasty. They are fat, plump, sleek, healthy, seemingly ready for slaughter. They face no trouble, he says. They are not stricken. They are prideful and violent and arrogant. They even openly defy God. He's saying they say, look around. You can follow God all you want, but your God's not producing anything good for you. That's why I don't follow him, and I do whatever I want to do. They mocked him in their arrogance. Now look at verse 12. This is where he summarizes their plight. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. 
we got back, uh, Jill and I, last Sunday night after a month away. On Monday, when I woke up, got out of bed to get dressed, uh, I couldn't find my underwear. Now, I'm not, I don't mean the underwear on my body. I mean the ones in the, the dresser. And I went to the top drawer and opened it, nothing, and literally went the entire way down the chest of drawers until I realized, oh, they're always in the closet. I had forgotten in only a month where my clothes stayed. <laughs> now, maybe that's not the best illustration. Let me try a different one. Have you ever woken in the middle of the night in a hotel and been completely disoriented? And in a moment of panic, you're like, where am I and how did I get here? That happened to anybody? That's what's happened to Asaph. He's woken, as it were, looked at his own life, looked around at everybody else, and said, I, I thought that God was good, but I am completely disoriented. Everything I thought I knew, I no longer know. How did I get here? Asaph's theology told him God is good, but his experience in comparison to others seemed to be shouting to him, God is not good. His conclusion to all of this, frankly, is understandable. You'll find it in verses 13 and 14. He says, by way of summary, since worldly people but people who don't claim to follow God, or people who do claim to follow God but are just pretending. Since those kinds of people have health, wealth, and ease, and I don't, faith in God is worthless. Have you experienced that kind of disorientation? God, I thought the deal was I would do your stuff and then you would do my stuff the way I wanted. That's such an incredibly common way to think about faith. Asaph's once confident assertion of God's goodness had been dashed against the rocks of broken dreams. No doubt questions like this filled his mind. If God is good, why Do wicked people prosper while godly people suffer? God, what's the value of following you if you don't make my life any better than it was without you? God, have I been duped spiritually? Is the Bible nothing more than wishful thinking? Is Christianity a sham? Does it work for all the rest of these people but not? me. Isn't it fascinating that a person who lived in the Middle East, spoke completely different language, had almost no cultural experiences like ours, lived 2,500 years ago, has written something 
that is as current as the thoughts you have that are drifting into your mind as you're trying to focus on what I'm saying. It's amazing, friends, how timeless the scriptures are. I would encourage you, please, to listen carefully to the next sentence. Asaph's point of disorientation was not mainly his experience, but his envy. Many times we think that our hardships as Christians in terms of our thoughts towards God are rooted in what happens to us. But that's simply not true. Our hardships very often come as a result of taking our eyes off God, looking around us at others, and then projecting upon them that life is better for them than it is for us. You see, friends, Asaph's difficulty was not whatever his difficulty was. Asaph's difficulty was his envy. His confusion spiritually was not primarily that his life was hard. And because his life was hard, he questioned God's goodness. Rather, his life was hard, and as he looked around his peers at a place of discontentment, then he found himself longing for what he thought they might have. But think back to what he said earlier. The wicked are always at ease. Is that true? Of course not. No one who has ever lived has always been at ease. That is impossible. And yet, as we look out through eyes of jealousy and envy, what we find is that everyone else seems to have it better than us. No. They're just better at hiding it than you. Envy, of course, isn't common today. This is not something any of us struggle with. Certainly, social media doesn't give opportunity for envy. Certainly, commercials don't conjure up thoughts of, I wish I had that. But just in case there's one or two who, at some point in your past, have battled with this once, Let's think for a moment about envy. What is it? What do we envy? Well, I made a short list. Jobs, money, hair, spouses, houses, cars, degrees, bodies, kids, connections, vacations, opportunities, health, experiences, possessions, and on and on and on. As we look at each other with eyes of envy, then everything and everyone becomes an opportunity for jealousy. Envy says, I want what you have because I deserve it more than you do. Envy is everywhere. It's even in the church. 
And it takes on a particularly cancerous tone among the people of God. Sounds something like this. What's the point of praying, of coming to church, of reading the Bible, of resisting temptation, of giving money in the offering, of serving, going to GC, discipling people, if God doesn't do in return what He's supposed to do? Which is make my life at least as good as the person next to me. Asaph was disoriented by envy. And it threatened to destroy him. This is a struggle uh, for you. You might write down Proverbs 14.30. This would be a great proverb to memorize. Proverbs 14.30. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. What a picture. Have you felt that as you have been envious? I know I have. It's as though if I'm looking at somebody else wanting what they have, you can literally feel your body breaking down. Now here's the good news. While in the midst of his struggle, this ancient song leader, this churchman, had enough sense not to stand up and announce his new conclusion about God. In other words, he was not disoriented to the extent that he harmed the people of God. It's not that he pretended or that he acted hypocritically, but that he recognized he was in a time of doubt and ought to be careful what he publicly said. Brothers and sisters, if you serve as an elder or a deacon, a GC leader, one of our missionaries, a resident, you're a team leader, you volunteer on a regular basis in a position of such status that people think of you as a leader and look to you for an example, then heed Asaph's warning. When you're in the middle of significant spiritual crisis, don't have a loose tongue in your leadership position. Tad mentioned last week the familiar phrase, you do you. Asaph didn't do him. He saw, I'm all messed up in how I'm thinking about God. And I'm not going to use my position to stand before all of God's people and tell them, don't bother. He's not good. You can't trust him. Go live like everybody else. Now be sure God changed Asaph's stinking thinking. God corrected him. God opened his mind again to truth. And it was at that point that then he told his story. Now, of course, there's a difference between saying, I'm I'm tempted in this particular way, and saying, the the very foundation of my faith has been shattered. And if I speak this out loud as a leader, I will become a heretic. 
Leaders, consider the position that God has placed you in. Now, we might call verses 16 to 26 reorientation. God reoriented Asaph to reality. He put him back in a place of understanding the truth. Now, notice in verse 16 where that happened. But when I thought how to understand this, with this being my struggle, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. Friends, Asaph, we would say, went to church. Asaph met with God's people, heard God's word, sung God's word, prayed with God's people to God. And in that moment, God providentially chose to reorient him back to what's true. Brothers and sisters, that's what's supposed to happen when we get together. Not merely we see friends and we follow a customary habit, but rather we sit together under God's Word. We hear from God. We talk with each other about what we've heard. We encounter the living God because God speaks through His Word as his people gather. As we get together, paradigm shifts happen as the Lord speaks. Make sure you prioritize our time together on Sundays. How long might Asaph's struggle have gone if he simply said, I'm not going because I'm not feeling it? It's a great model for us. Now, the path out of this spiritual disorientation is rather surprising. God doesn't at first say, quit looking around at other people, Asaph. Look back right at me. That's what I would have expected him to say. But that isn't what he says. God meets him right where he is. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you wouldn't claim to love God, to believe in God, to follow God. You can still pray. You can say, God, if you're there, would you meet me where I am? God's awfully good at that. He met Asaph right where Asaph was. God said, okay, in essence, you're looking around envying everybody else? How about I show you their actual state? How about I show you their outcome? That's what the end of verse 17 says, until I discerned their end. Asaph went to worship with God's people in the sanctuary, and there he was changed. God told him, Asaph, in essence, you don't need more comfortable circumstances. Asaph, you need your eyes to be lifted up off temporal things like health, wealth, and ease. And you need to see life in light of eternity. Because it's just not true that anyone, if they live long enough, will always be healthy, always be wealthy, and always be at ease. 
But even if they were, don't miss this. This is the heart of what changed Asaph's understanding. Even if they were healthy, wealthy, and wise, while at the same time rejecting God. While concurrently, God's people are not. They are unhealthy, they are unwealthy, they are uneasy. Even if that were true, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Friends, life is but a tiny, tiny speck compared to the vastness of eternity. You have never met, C.S. Lewis said, a mere mortal. Every human being will live forever. Your soul is eternal. And God corrected Asaph by saying, they may have it easy now, but they will not forever. Perhaps we could put it this way. Consider the outcome of two very different lives. John, we'll start with him. We'll call him John. John lived a worldly life. He's a nice guy. Obeyed the rules generally, had a good job, name brand clothes, a big house, a nice car, always seemed to be healthy, and he seemed perennially to have a pretty lady by his side. All the while, anytime anyone tried to share the gospel with him, he said, ah, I don't need that spirituality stuff. And then John died. John faced the judgment of God for his sin. And John is in and forever will be in. A place called hell. A place of complete separation from anything good. Jane, on the other hand, we might call her, by grace lived a godly life. She picked a less lucrative job so she could stay in downtown Tempe after she graduated from ASU and continue to serve at Churchill Mill. She could only afford a tiny little apartment compared to the big place she could have gotten in Gilbert or Queen Creek. Jane seemed to constantly be filling her time with helping people at great cost to herself, financially and emotionally. She didn't spend her evenings constantly looking for the next guy to hook up with, but rather discipling college-age women as they emerged into adulthood. And oddly enough, she was one of those people who seemed to be at the doctor every other week, catching whatever illness the haboobs blew in. By the way, there's been some nasty ones, haven't there? Jane lived a hard life, and then she died. But that moment she breathed her last, she was embraced by her Savior. Jane will spend forever in the presence of God. Friends, these are the outcomes of two very different lives. 
And it's not that one life deserved a good outcome and the other didn't. It's rather one life, James, recognized her need for God, recognized his goodness, turned from her sin and put her trust in him, in Jesus Christ, and therefore was saved. While John had a few passing years of pleasure and an eternity of pain. Which one would you choose? As we close, I hope you'll look down at verse 27 with me. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You've put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me, it's good to be healthy, wealthy, and at ease. No. Be careful not to define the goodness of God that way. Asaph says, no. As for me, good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Friends, the goodness of God consists not of passing health, wealth, and ease, but rather of unending nearness to God. You and I were created to know Him, to commune with Him, to be close to Him. Now, yes, that's complex because we don't see Him with our eyes. But the church is the body of Christ in the world today. It is the way through which the invisible Jesus becomes visible for now. And so as we look around and see the goodness of God portrayed in the relationships that we share and in how he's changing us, then we see more and more closely how good God is. And we're drawn into unending nearness. So what is good? It turns out that good isn't necessarily, in fact, is probably not living in a status in which everything is easy. There are no crises or surprises. Where the visa can run up a balance as big as you can make and you'll never have to pay. Rather, what's good is being near God. And that means whatever God uses in terms of hardship to turn us from self-reliance back to treasuring being close with Him. That even those bad things He uses for good. What's good is being near God. What if we take a minute or two in quiet prayer? Can you consider your your own state? Talk with God about what He said through His Word. Perhaps repent of envy. Return to Christ for the first time. 
And I'm going to ask Pastor Tad if he would please come and close us.